Texas talking ball. What was that that you said? Texas talking ball. Gonna hoop up beside your head. Texas talking Tell me who can you trust when Texas has Hello, this is State Representative Trent Ashby. I didn't win the Billion Dollar March Madness contest, but introducing this week's TribCast is rewarding enough. Speaking of busted brackets, here's your host, Reeve Hamilton. Thank you. This is reporter Reeve Hamilton here with the TribCast for the final week of March, and I am joined by Executive Editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Managing Editor Brandy Grissom. Hello. And reporter Nina Satija. Hi. Thank you all for joining us. What sure. a great that way was to, that was to great. end yeah. the month. Thanks for having us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I guess we, should, we actually are starting off with a pretty serious topic, so we shouldn't have too much levity in the first few minutes. But uh, there was a massive oil spill in the Galveston Bay. Massive? Is that fair? How serious is this, Nina? It's pretty serious. I think massive is, is fair. Massive is a fair word to use. So what happened? Well, it uh, looks like a, um, a, a ship with a Liberian flag called the Summer Wind collided with a... Um, a tanker or a tugboat that was carrying two oil barges that was operated by Kirby Inland Marine. Um, they collided. Not quite sure why that happened yet. Nobody seems to really want to give us any details on that. It's still being investigated. Um, and one of the barges that the tugboat was carrying, um, one of the tankers on that barges that was carrying oil, ruptured. So that's that, t- that tanker had about um, 168,000 gallons of oil in it. This is fuel oil, so it's not crude oil, but it's 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 heavier than crude oil, and it's pretty gross. Um, it's not acutely toxic. Is gross the technical term? Gross is the technical term. It's like yeah. really sludgy. It's sludgy. It's black and sticky, and that's really how you've heard people describe it, whether they're scientists or otherwise. That's just it's just gross, gunky, black, sticky, clumpy kind of stuff. So is that is that uh, worse, better, or just different from crude oil? It is spill wise, not like you know, just taste wise. Right, <laughs> it's it's yeah. it's worse in some ways and better in other ways. It's worse because of that density factor, as far as I've been told. So crude oil, you know, you can it'll some of it'll skim off the surface, it'll evaporate, it'll stay on the surface of the water. A lot of this stuff is going to sink into the water, which makes it very hard to recover. It means it's going to get down onto the bottom of the you know of the, the Galveston Bay floor where shrimp and other larvae are hanging out trying to survive. So that's a problem. It also tends to persist. Whatever toxins are in that oil are less acutely toxic than crude oil, but they're also more persistent. So crude oil has the sort of short-term, very acutely toxic effects. Not that it doesn't have any long-term effects, but certainly this oil, less acutely toxic, but has more persistent effects that can go up the food chain. So, you know, if it could even go to humans, very hard to tell what's going to happen right now. But if fish survive and they ingest some of this oil, that oil, those toxins and the, whatever effects those toxins have are going to go up the food chain as different animals continue to eat you know, up that food chain. So that's, that's the concern. But we don't really know what's going to happen right now. We, we still don't know the extent of the spill and how much it's going to be able to be contained. Well, there was this oil spill in 2010, and you wrote about this this week. The Port Arthur We're spill. expecting this to be worse than that spill or just uh just, maybe just different again yeah it's it's different well so so there are two spills in 2010 i suppose in, in the texas gulf of mexico area that is that, I, is that a know, lot of spills of. for one area um or is that just sort of an average well rate? there's a lot of drilling in the gulf of mexico but i mean really there were t- there were two different areas in the in the gulf there was the bp oil spill that was farther offshore 
And so you didn't have a lot of oil coming into Galveston Bay. You know that. So really, a lot of folks that I've spoken to think that this is going to have much worse effects on Galveston Bay than the BP oil spill did. Um, so that's one, number one. The other spill that happened in 2010 in Texas was um, in the Port Arthur Ship Channel. And that was a lot more oil. That was as many as 400 or 450,000 gallons About of twice oil. Size. Yeah. Um, and I can't recall what type of oil. I don't know. I don't think it was the same type of fuel oil that spilled now. But, you know, honestly, um, people, people tell me, well, that's not a sensitive ecosystem. What they're probably saying is partly that 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 area has been so polluted that it doesn't really matter what we do to it now. And we don't really <laughs> fish there anymore. Right. We don't really fish there anymore. Galveston Bay, it's not yet that polluted. Um, that's a cynical way of looking at it, but that's part of the issue, too. It's, it's still nice enough for it to be a problem. Right. We, Jim reported in the, a story that we um, published yesterday about the role of the land commissioners or the general land office in sort of helping to reduce the number of these um, oil spills. But I was kind of shocked to learn just how many of them happen at all. There yeah. are literally hundreds over, you know, even the last couple of years. This is Jim yeah. Mallett. Right. Yeah, Jim Mallett's our energy reporter. Right. We, we And we had a we, – we, he took a great look at – You guys can all call him Jim, though. <laughs> Mallett's of the Tribune. <laughs> he took a great look at, you know, what – the extent of spills that we've had over the past few years. It's I mean, it's worth noting that this kind of stuff is going to happen. They're going to look at even when you've got one or two gallons of oil spilled in Galveston Bay, it can be an issue, you know, and that could be because someone sloshed it overboard. It could be for whatever reason. It doesn't have to be a collision for you to create – um, the conditions for a small spill. So, but you know, it, I thought uh, the the data that he he pulled and that he reported on was interesting. I wouldn't have thought that the number of spills has gone down that significantly. But this is this is you know something that you're going to get when you have such a busy sh- ship channel like the Houston Ship Channel and such busy ports out there. You're going to have spills. Question is, can you avoid the really big ones and can you contain the bigger ones? It seems like you know with a lot of disasters of this sort, like you know the BP uh, incident. A couple of years back, or even like with West and the explosion there, you get instantly get sort of calls for you know is questions about regulation and you yeah. know is there not enough oversight like in the West thing of chemical storage and the monitoring of that. I haven't heard that as much on this spill, but maybe it's just too early, or maybe it's happening and I just haven't stumbled across it. No, I think you're right. I haven't heard as much of it either. There was a there is already a class action lawsuit that was filed against Kirby and the Marine. Um, and perhaps the operator also of the summer wind ship, and I don't know who that operator is, but there was already a class action lawsuit filed by a number of business owners in the port of Galveston and Galveston Harbor who say they've lost business. But there hasn't been a lot of talk yet about the need for new regulation in Texas, at least, not that I've heard. Here's the most important question. What is that going to mean for going to Landry's to get seafood in a couple months? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What are, like, are we just going to be out of shrimp cocktails no. Probably what will happen is there will be less – Galveston Bay is the most productive bay in Texas when it comes to seafood by far. San Antonio is second and it's probably half as productive if that. So there's definitely going to be some effects there. Now, the the whole bay isn't closed off to shipping uh, – off to fishing, sorry, today. There are people fishing. There are people crabbing. There's going to be a perception issue and all sorts of other issues as to whether people are actually going to want to eat and buy that you know, that product. But probably what will happen is we'll have a little bit less Texas seafood, but we'll have, you know, I've talked to producers or I talked to wholesalers who said, well, I'm just going to buy some more from Louisiana. Or I'm going to buy more from the east or farther west, probably farther east mostly. So I don't think we're going to see 
um, the effects in a couple months. But longer term is really what people are worried about when it comes to fish in particular because of what I mentioned, that effect up the food chain. We don't, we just don't know what that's going to be today. And a lot of this is about spawning and when these larvae turn into baby shrimp or baby crab or whatever. The, you know, the way that a lot of these fish spawn is they spawn out in the Gulf. Then the eggs basically drift along in the water to come back towards the shore near these marshes that might be now contaminated with oil. And they're also hanging out in the water while they're drifting, and you've got this black, sticky, awful stuff sinking down. So we don't, you know, but it's going to take another nine months for those eggs to turn into baby shrimp or baby crabs or whatever fish they're going to be and then go back into the Gulf. So no one's going to be consuming them until they're, you know, until they're matured. So, so the, the immediate commercial effect is really on use of the ship channel, right? Yes, that's what I would say. And also the ability of boats to get in and out of the Gulf, which right. is still right now very hampered, right. especially for the charter fishing boats. So maybe you can still be a pescatarian, but you might want to reevaluate in like a year. Thinking pescatarian. <laughs> there's, still, there's still plenty of uh, cattle throughout Texas that has no oil on it. I recommend eating that. There we go. Well, <laughs> and it's, I'd hate to make this sort of scare people off of eating seafood. Um, this you know, is not like our Oprah moment. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's there's a lot of very rigorous testing that happens in Texas for, you know, for fish that people consume. But I will say that, yeah, it's going to be a long-term effect question. And actually, uh, the same week, a, a couple or one study came out, another study came out last month looking at the effects of the BP oil spill. Right. And remember, that was crude oil way farther out in the Gulf. Um, the effects of the BP oil spill on species that spawn in the Gulf and then stay in the Gulf, like tuna and salmon. Um and um, they were some pretty horrible effects that those fish dealt with. Even though they survived, they had things like heart defects. And we still don't really know what if there are going to be health consequences for people who consume those fish. But you're talking about long-term population problems with those fish. Are there going to be enough of those generations from now for people to you know, consume the seafood that they consume today? That's the question. Yikes. So let's, yeah. serious. let's move on. But I will say we still don't know a lot. Too apocalyptic. I would say wait till. Wait to jump to conclusions. <laughs> Brandy. Hi. <laughs> Fine. I'll wait. I'll keep eating fish. Well, I'm going to talk about a different sort of uh, toxic dump, I suppose. <laughs> it's, more of a, it's more of a data dump. It's less serious. That's kind of toxic. <laughs> uh, I spent some uh, earlier this week uh, going through more than 2,000 documents over at the University of Texas system, and these are documents that uh, – we and other news outlets had asked for because Chancellor Sigaroa of the UT system said he was going to resign back in February. And this, so they finally let us see so them. These were all the emails and stuff between the emails, regents and, right. and top staff and, you know, trying to figure out what was going on behind that resignation. Right. And, and you know, you can only sort of get a sense of it because many of the – it was incredibly – the levels of redaction on this thing, I, I like to say, made Valerie Blame's autobiography look – Readable, but nobody knows what you're talking about. Yeah, but Ross said that was sort of too obscure a reference. If anyone has read that, I, don't know, I might be the only one. Much of it is redacted as well. But the point is, see, we we get sort of a sense of what's going on at the UT system, but not a clear picture. And there might be stuff we're missing because they decided to black it out. Uh, but what you get is definitely you you see a state agency that is not operating at sort of optimal efficiency. That's <laughs> the nicest way I can put that. I mean, basically, it's sort of in disarray, I mean, you could say. So if you were just doing sort of an overarching look at this, you've got a board of regents that is trying to, in in the minds of some of those regents, trying to rein in the flagship, right? Rein in UT Austin and 
it's you know there's sort of a tug of war for you know how the the direction of the system and of the, its flagship in particular, and they disagree on the direction and on the means to do that, right? And so they're just fighting about everything. Well, yeah, if you, there's definitely a focus on UTIs, and you've had some regions have accused other regions of being too focused on UTIs, and that really becomes clear looking at all these documents. Is basically we have. Um, one region, mostly Wallace Hall, who is being investigated by a legislative committee, they might recommend his impeachment because they think he's gone too far. Some people have accused him of being on a witch hunt to get Bill Powers, the president of UT Austin. Uh, he has launched a number of inquiries into sort of there's no issue too existing <laughs> that uh, can't be sort of picked apart. By him, so you know, he has an inquiry going on into the president's travel. He has an inquiry going on into um, contracts uh, with Accenture. contracts with Accenture. He has an uh, inquiry going on into the right? admissions process, both at the undergraduate level and the, but especially the law right. school level. Yeah, power powers compensation at the law school. Right. So there's right. just so there all these things, and then you see other things that I, I you know my impression is that the other schools don't get this level of scrutiny. So the university got. Its biggest cash gift from the Mulva family last year got $60 million from some family. And even that, instead of being like, oh, this is great, became – and this wasn't Hall, actually. This was a different region. was like, well, what's the present value of – like, is that the largest cash gift in present value? Like, maybe we shouldn't put it in the press release that it's the largest cash gift. It's like everything becomes a point of nitpicking. Now, you can – but you can – so you can look at all this stuff and you can come to one of three conclusions, I think. Uh, you can basically think uh, – Walls like Hall is, is right. just this is great. door number one. Yeah, Walls Hall is just after powers, and nothing will stop him, and he won't. You know, has a vendetta against this guy. Door number two. No, door number two is that Bill Powers is uh, corrupt and is getting away with it, and only Hall is shining the light on it. And door number three. door number three is both, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that two doors? Yeah, you can just open door three. Lets you open doors one and two. Uh, you know, there, there's some some of the some of Hall's questions are legitimate as far as we can see. You're like, or the something's like, you know. So he has some students. He can't say who, but appear to have gotten in after you know lawmakers directly talked to the president. That maybe shouldn't have gotten in or wouldn't so get kid, in under this typical kid, things. This kid wasn't necessarily getting into UT law, but after a phone call from some powerful legislator. Ding. Got into YouTube. Right. And you can ask questions about that. And maybe that's a legitimate concern. Or, for example, on the Accenture contract. So this consulting firm, a, a committee was created and chaired by an executive at a consulting firm. That committee, uh, the university hired that consulting firm to support that committee. That committee ultimately recommended implementing a plan that that firm was then hired to implement. And they and they hired them under on a contract that was worth slightly under the $1 million trigger that would have required Regents' approval, right? right. So these are not all uh, baseless questions. Right. But I think the way that the questions are raised and sort of the, the tone of the system – is is one that's probably not productive even in getting them answered. And obviously it's not productive in getting them answered because they haven't been answered. Some of this stuff has been outstanding for a year. It was a year ago that the UT regents sent the attorney general uh, sort of – they referred an investigation to them. They wanted to say, hey, will you guys look into the law school foundation and how they 
give deferred compensation to some law, law professors. They did that a year ago. The AG's office hasn't moved on that because they are waiting for a written statement from Hall explaining what they want him to look into, and he refuses to give it to them. So this is just a system that's not working. It's just like stymied and personal back and forth and inability to get along with one another. Right. And you also saw this in the way they handled these records, right? So, like, it was very hard to get the records. The records we got uh, were uh, sort of redacted to a ridiculous point. One thing they redacted, for example, this shows you what they're redacting. Um, and this is – it's going to sound impossible for me to not sound like an idiot as I explain this. But Go ahead. Uh, we like that part. Yeah, there, was a, there was a story I wrote – uh, that the Idiot. chancellor that the chancellor emailed around to some regents, and he he said it had the right tone, and so in one stack of papers, nice. yeah, it was very nice. I appreciate it. Uh, glad I got the tone right. Um, in one stack of documents, that was not redacted, so I knew what it said. In another stack, that was redacted. Him saying right tone. Uh, so it's like, how is that? How could that possibly be a like a protected? Analysis. Of so then the story you start to wonder written. about everything that they read. Well, do you right? have any sense? I mean, it, this is this is going to make me sound like an idiot. So we'll all jump in. Um, <laughs> all the men on welcome, the podcast. Welcome to the idiot cast. <laughs> right. Um, do you have any sense? No. Uh, about what kind of stuff was redacted? Why were they redacting at this level? And what is it that they're trying to protect? I mean, do they give you any sense of that? What we've been told is that is sort of anything that they considered, uh, quote unquote, the deliberative process. Um, oh, the old deliberative process. Which is you know, sort of a <laughs> nonsense term that means uh, any want thoughts or feelings that anyone has, except for the ones that like uh, – you know, so this letter came out from Paul Foster. <laughs> there were plenty of thoughts and feelings <laughs> in, the, in the quotes you used. Yeah, but imagine the ones that aren't. Well, right. Yeah. So but some – every now and then an email – so like Paul Foster, the chairman of the board, wrote this email in February saying to Sigaroa shortly before he announced his resignation saying, just to be clear – I don't agree with the insinuations from Hall that you haven't been doing your job because Hall had sent multiple emails hinting that he did not believe he was getting the necessary uh, support or actions out of Sigaroa. Right. Um, that entire email was one of the few that had absolutely no redactions on it, and it was full of just Foster's thoughts and feelings mm -hmm. about the situation. In other cases, for example, their um, executive vice chancellor for development would say – you know, I just looked over this document and I got to say redacted, you know, paragraphs and paragraphs that were redacted. And it's like, well, what? she's not an attorney. She has no attorney-client privilege. Why are her thoughts and feelings not included in here? So there doesn't seem to be any consistency. Part of the problem is um, the morale over at the system office has gotten so bad, as Sigaroa has testified to in the Transparency Committee, that their general counsel's office, a lot of the people that used to run the show there, run the open record stuff, have quit. Or taken jobs elsewhere. Uh, so it's sort of – so even – that's the thing is even if these questions are worth it, you know, right. that Hall has raised, right. is it worth it to run everyone into the ground trying to chase them down is sort of the question that they have to wrestle with over there. And a bunch of this is still pending over at the attorney general's office. So, for example, our request to uh, see all of the emails between the regents and the top staff, you know, over the last 90 days about this stuff – the system sent to the attorney general's office and said, we don't believe this is public information, yada, yada, yada. The AG could still come in and say it is public information. Give them those documents unredacted. I mean, they could still do that. And it's, all, it's also just odd. You know, the UT system has been 
and, and Hall in particular has been sort of really pushing for transparency. That's sort of one of their talking points. We have this dashboard of data that you can use. You know, we post the open records requests we receive online. And at the same time, and this is part of their sort of ever-conflicting narrative, they have been – they have a history uh, – this current board or some people on this current board have a history of repeatedly sort of trying to – sort of abuse the uh, the records process or the notion of attorney-client privilege to hide stuff. You know, you had that whole thing last year where Gene Powell, the former chairman, tried to refuse to turn stuff over to lawmakers right. and tried to refer to the attorney general and uh, then pretended like he had come up with an idea to make them sign confidentiality agreements when they already had sort of confidential legislative whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just so they, they both say, we want to be transparent, and then when they're given the opportunity, they are extremely mm, maybe not what they mean is they want other people to be transparent <laughs> right, i want to see all your stuff i don't want to show mine but right. he, so here's the question i have if what became clear from those documents is like basically there's things are kind of clustery over mm. there did we get any idea of the question that we started out with which was why cigaroa left in the first place not exactly. What was interesting about – so in 2,000-plus documents, of what we could read, there was almost no hint of the fact that Siguro was about to resign and no hint of the fact that he just had resigned. There was an email from Gene Powell the day before he resigned saying, hey, thank you for everything you've done. You're a great friend. You know, congratulations. And there was an email from Regent Bobby Stilwell the day after Siguro had announced saying, you did a great job with that announcement. You're a great guy. Bravo. But besides that, there was no mention of the fact that this announcement was coming up or that it had just happened. Was there a, were there a bunch of – I don't know if they redacted dates on documents. Were there a bunch of redacted documents around those dates? Uh, well, yes, but a lot of them seem to have to do with these Accenture contracts and right. getting to the bottom of that situation. Right. Um, so I asked and I said so, – but, uh, but it sounds like actually what it was – well, now so the official narrative is that it was sort of a surprise to the regents, too, his his resignation. Uh, apparently, he told Paul Foster, who's the chairman of the board, of his plans to resign on January 15th, is what the system told me. And he actually resigned February 10th? February 10th. But they didn't tell anyone else. Foster and Segroa didn't tell anyone else. Maybe some internal staff knew, but the other regents, the public, didn't really know until – some of the regents knew maybe February 9th, February 8th, uh, but then the public knew February 10th. But so – most people were kept in the dark, apparently. As for why, you know, he says that it didn't have to do with all this, you know, fighting over Bill Powers. Sure, it sounds like a great job. Right. Back in December, you know, he recommended that Powers should keep his job. And so in these emails, he sort of clearly hints that some regions felt that that should not be the case. Yeah, well, Hall, in fact, Hall seemed particularly Hall, unhappy about Hall that. Paul and Powell basically say up front, like, you know, whatever great new relationship you think you have with Powers is not going well. Uh, right. You know, this is not working. Uh, we can't trust. They think that they feel like they can't trust Powers. Uh, so, and uh, Senator Zaffarini has put out a statement. She feels like the emails have supported her claims that basically after Sigaroa jumped in front of the anti-powers train that, you know, they turned their sights on him. And the emails do support that theory, right? You start to see them saying, why aren't you moving on this investigation? Why aren't you taking action against the chief financial officer at UT for they think that that guy Kevin Hegarty lied in his testimony the system says that the the university says that the system made them turn over 800,000 documents the system says they only ma made the university turn over a mere 100,000 documents and so they this want is like reading somebody's <laughs> divorce decree <Right. laughs> and so they want 
uh, action taken against Hegarty for that testimony, um, no action's been taken. So there's a lot of like, why aren't you, not the words, why aren't you doing your job aren't in there, but they're heavily, heavily hinted at. So I would imagine if you're Sigaroa and you're like this renowned surgeon and you get an offer to go do surgery, which is what you trained for 16 years to do before you got into administrative stuff, it you can see how he might want to uh, make that leap, you know, if the opportunity presents itself. It'd be, it's sort it, of like, it, it'd be calming to get just back to plain old life and death stuff. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Suddenly I like things become a lot clearer. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. Well, so this is like an, maybe an idiot question, but what does oh, this join mean? join the club. Well, yes. Here we go. Idiocracy. a boys only club. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what does this mean? Is there anything that you can say about what this would mean in the near or far future for students at, in the UT system? I mean, does this mean anything for them? Gosh, uh, what kind of question is that? Yeah, no, know? it doesn't. <laughs> Well, that's the thing is it doesn't mean a lot for students. This is more of like a Austin insidery capital fight than it is anything else. The basic message here is like these are the people that the Governor Perry has picked to run this university system, yeah. which is you know one of the most is one of the if not the most prestigious university systems in the state. Right. It's a little nod to A and M, I guess. Just so they don't call me. <laughs> yeah. But is there? A, I mean, is there a? John there, Sharp has There's a fight him. about the direction that the university should be taking. You know, that the system should be taking ultimately. And I guess. Well, I'm at just the wondering. beginning of this, there was a fight about how the school ought to go, and you know the you know whether the um, colleges and universities, state colleges and universities in general, are properly aligned with the economic needs of the state and, right. the, and the job needs of the students that they're educating and those and, kinds of things. And so it does It does get to who will be leading the University of Texas, right. who will be leading the University of Texas system, Will those? what will the le- priorities of those leaders be, what will the quality be of those leaders be if, you know, can you get the quality people that you want leading those institutions if this is the kind of pool they have to swim in? Um, but I guess th- it seems like there are also at least some questions about spending if – if some of the allegations that Wallace Hall has raised about, you know, these conflicts of interests and trips that the president is taking and the contracts with Accenture, if money is being sort of misused or misspent that could go to education, I guess in some way that might affect students. Yeah. Although I, most – I think the – so the big thing in the travel investigation, and according to the system, the travel investigation has done and they've decided that the travel they reviewed for powers was in fact – proper university business. But I think that is more of they're trying to get at, does he have a conflict of interest when he accepts donated flights from right. individuals? Um, so that's not university money being spent exactly. But, uh, they did, but they, you know, there might be university money being spent on other travels that they looked at. Uh, so yeah, that could be an issue. And obviously money's tight and money will continue to be tight in higher education going forward. So that is, you know, a legitimate issue. But really, I think it gets more to who and how are these institutions going to be run? I mean, the situation at UT is sort of like, sort of like the uh, plot of Captain Phillips. You know, when the guys come on and say, "We are the captain now." That's sort of what's gone on with these <laughs> regents, right? You see, like they are like Wallace Hall's not even the chairman, and he's more or less running the show. You so see, Bill him, Powers was running around going, "How did Wallace Hall get on my boat?" Right? No, great. No, I th- well, I meant Cigarroa was, but Powers too. <laughs> bro. Powers on the smaller boat next to, next. To he's me. on the dinghy. Yeah. So who's the U.S. government then? I mean, who's the Who's the, see, we're going to abuse your metaphor to death here. <laughs> I, I guess the it'll question, be interesting to see what Abbott does. Yeah, that would be Davis. my question. Well, that's 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 kind of <laughs> yeah. a question here. If you if you somehow could remove the current set of personalities, you know, just and and leave kind of the underlying arguments, what would this be about? I mean, if if you got rid of the Halls and the Powells and all of these players, Cigarro and you know, on and on. Um, 
what would the underlying argument be? Is there still something at stake here? And there was. When all this stuff got started, there was legitimate policy disagreement about, you know, the TPPF had put out their seven solutions and Perry's trying to implement these. And a lot of that was sort of okay. treating students as customers and, and sort of tweaking your business model so it was more customer service oriented. Uh, that didn't really fly with the faculty councils and legislators. But um, but that was a real debate that was happening. And, and is it, that the underlying fight here still? No. Now I think the underlying fly, fight is uh, we don't like each other. So this is just a personality like thing? Like the Norma Chavez-Marissa Marquez fight from a while yes. ago. Yes. Yeah. I hope there are text messages you could get. Well, it's, it'd probably ooh. be redacted. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, their redacting tool is not a marks a lot. It's a it's a roller brush and a can of black paint. <laughs> well, we have two minutes left. I I meant to get to a third topic, which is that the deadline for uh, Obamacare enrollment is this weekend, and it looks like Texas is not going to pull its weight on this one. Uh, does that matter going forward? It's going to matter in the sense that, you know, we still have large numbers of uninsured. And, you know, one of the persistent problems for hospitals and healthcare in the state is that, you know, in in some large measure, the public ends up paying for the health care for the people who don't pay for their own health care, either through, through whatever kind of insurance that they have. So, you know, the kind of persistent and chronic problems Texas has with a large uninsured population and uncompensated care at, at big hospitals is going to continue for a while. And to the extent that young people are needed in the system to sort of bring down the overall costs for everyone, and the population in Texas is comprised to a great degree of young people, um, that doesn't help either. Now, uh, I think based on the story we had this morning, it looks like maybe less than 10% of the eligible population to enroll in Texas has so far. And as you know, we've seen you if you break this down along partisan lines, you know, do you give the lack of credit to the sort of democratic leaning organizations that we've seen have some trouble sort of turning out the vote, for example? Uh, or, you know, is it the Republicans have really put as many roadblocks as they can in front of Obamacare enrollment? Uh, you know, and they didn't expand Medicaid. You know, they, so can they sincerely say, oh, this just shows that people don't want it when they've thrown up every impediment they can. You know, Texas got into trouble years ago for not advertising to its citizens um, children's health care programs that the state was running. They started a thing called Texas Health Steps that um, basically was put in place. The federal courts required the state to start marketing this stuff. The state was saving money by not marketing it. If we just be quiet about this and offer the program, we won't have enough people in it uh, to, to cost us too much money. The federal court said, no, you've got to market it, and the numbers went way up. I think, you know, one of the questions here is whether the state adequately marketed these kinds of things, and, you know, vis-a-vis -vis other states, maybe it didn't. The other thing that's going to happen is that over some period of time, and I'm not sure which side will win this argument. It's going to be interesting to watch. Over some period of time, people are going to see what they have and don't have and make their judgments about it, probably in a political context going into the November election. So, you know, I think this plays out politically next, and then there's another enrollment period in a year. All right. Well, if you have judgments that you'd like to send, sort of prejudgments or questions or comments, you Lots can send them to yes, Tribcast. <laughs> that won't be redacted. <laughs> yeah. Please keep all emails you send to Tribcast.org redaction-free. Uh, we'd like to thank Shiny Ribs for doing our music. And on behalf of Brandy, Ross, Nina, and our producer, Todd, this is Reeve. Thanks for listening.
Mmm, tacos. <laughs>